Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Jungle Adventures in East Orange County lets visitors experience the wilds of old Florida. Without places like us and other small places, it's too fake. This is real. People need to know what real is. We'll discuss Hopkins' plat maps of Miami, including one from 1925. And it shows everything. It shows where schools are, where railroad tracks are, roads, of course, sidewalks. It even describes businesses. And we'll remember the glass bank in Cocoa Beach, demolished in 2015. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Driving down State Road 50 in the rural area between Christmas, Florida and Titusville, the 200-foot-long concrete alligator called Swampy is hard to miss. Visitors must walk inside Swampy's gaping jaws to enter Jungle Adventures. In his 1791 book, Bartram's Travels, naturalist William Bartram describes struggling with aggressive alligators in the wilds of Florida. Bartram's observations of the natural Florida still fascinate readers, but some believe that his stories of alligator encounters may be exaggerated. At Jungle Adventures in East Central Florida, you can get up close and personal with an alligator without fearing for your life. Reptile Ryan is a guide and animal caretaker at Jungle Adventures. The experience is like going out into the woods in Florida into the swamp without having to worry about getting lost. I mean, uh, that's a big thing that happens a lot. People get out into the Everglades and stuff like that, and they can get lost quicker than they know. Here, at least you got some sidewalks to walk on. You don't have to get your feet wet unless you want to. Um, and um, you can get to see, hear, and smell the real old Florida, the way it used to be back in the day. Not much has changed here. Um, and that's what they can expect. They can also expect a, a, a tour with a guide that will um, get them to a wildlife encounter where they get to go hands-on with native animals of Florida and some invasive species. They also get to go to a Native American village where we like to talk about the original heritage of Florida, the Native Americans. Um, we have an alligator feeding where we hand feed large alligators either by jumping or actually walking out there and standing with them and talk about them a little bit. And then we do have a boat ride where we take them for about a 15-minute boat ride around our property here in our lagoon where they get to see some more of the floral and fauna and um, get some really good pictures and stuff like that. Jungle Adventures began in the 1970s as a private alligator farm, but has evolved into a tourist attraction focused on education and conservation. Florida animals are made accessible to the public. Well, when they come here, as far as our Florida natives, we do have our alligators, believe it or not. There are crocodiles native to Florida. We have an American crocodile here. Um, actually, we're getting ready to move her to a new enclosure. She's getting an upgrade, so that's going to be fun. We have um, coyotes, which aren't native, but they're here. We have native snakes, um, your rat snakes, things of that nature um, that we have in our shows. And who knows what's going to be out here in the swamp when you're walking around. 
Um, what else do we have that's native? Um, all the natural Florida stuff that you would find in the wild is going to be possibly blue herons, green herons, great white egrets, cattle egrets, ibis. A lot of birds like to come here and nest because this is a spot, a good location in the south, especially during migration times. Um, not native to Florida, but you do find them sometimes is the macaques. You hear about them in Silver Springs and stuff. We do have a couple of uh, macaque monkeys. We have a raccoon that we just acquired from our fish and wildlife officers. Let's see what else. And Florida panthers and the Florida black bear. Those are all native animals that you can encounter here in Jungle Adventures. In addition to guiding visitors through Jungle Adventures, Reptile Ryan is one of the primary caretakers for the animals that live here. We usually start pretty early in the morning, around 7.30ish, um, and the we'll, we, first thing we do is take a walk, make sure that all the enclosures are intact, that there wasn't a, a fallen limb or branch or anything that customers can trip on, um, and then we look at the health of each animal. We look at each animal we've been here with for, I've been here with some of them for over 20 years or since they were born. Um, other people have been here for a very long time, and they all like us. They have their normal things. Some people are a grouch in the morning. Our bear, he's not very social in the morning. Uh, um, our panthers actually are more social in the morning and if they start to act a little bit different we can take notice and and start to look and see if maybe there's something going on a possible cold or something like that um, and then there's the cleaning of course if something goes in it comes out so you got to clean up the cages um, make sure that everybody's getting what they need um, and, and knowing what to give each animal because you know your omnivores have to have a little bit of mix of everything but your vegetarians like our fallow deer and our mutton jack deer they actually they don't need much meat protein they need more plant protein so you have to make sure you know how to do the diets that way properly um, the tortoises uh, we there is a tortoise the red foot tortoises that we have they do require some protein in their diet whereas the sulcata or the large spur thighed tortoises we have they're only vegetables um, so we have to make sure that they're not getting the wrong stuff in their diet because it can cause health issues. So we have to keep an eye on that, make sure that everybody's doing good. And, and th that's kind of, I mean, that's the first thing in the morning. And then we move on to prepping the diets, getting the diets prepared, getting the animals fed and cleaned. Um, and then coming back midday and double checking on them, make sure everything's okay, doing multiple walks throughout the day. Um, and then, then you have your show staff who does basically the same thing but mostly with the animals that we do in the shows, our alligators, our snakes, our arachnids, stuff like that. Unlike the carefully manicured landscapes at historic Florida attractions such as Bach Tower Gardens in Lake Wales, Murakami Museum and Japanese Gardens in Delray Beach, and Vizcaya Museum and Gardens in Miami, Jungle Adventures wants visitors to experience wild Florida nature. Even the places who are Florida attractions, a lot of them now what you see is um, a very manicured, a lot of it isn't even native plants and species. Um, and people need to know what it was originally, you know, when you come out and what's happening. Uh, the thing I like about Jungle Adventures, it's a true depiction of what's happening out in our wild. We don't do a lot of landscaping. We, we do trim bushes back and make sure things look presentable. But um, in Florida, we have a problem with Brazilian peppers everywhere, not native and they kill native plants. We do have quite a few Brazilian peppers where a lot of places I go, you don't see that. Um, it's what attracted me to Jungle Adventures because when I came here and visited, I said to myself, man, I feel like I'm out in the woods. And when I go out in the woods, I don't see what I see at other attractions. When I go here, I'm like, this is what I see in the woods. This is a true depiction of what's happening 
in our wild with the Brazilian peppers coming in and invading. We do trim them back and stuff, but we want people to see that this is the problem that can become and happen if we don't be good stewards and keep an eye on it, um, which we are being as good as we can, but still able to educate about why it's so important to keep our native species and stuff going. And without places like us and other small places, it's too fake. This is real. People need to know what real is. As the population of Florida continues to grow, black bears are sometimes seen foraging in suburbs, alligators are found in neighborhood retention ponds, and flocks of blue heron stop traffic as they walk across roads. We can also encounter wild Florida at natural attractions like Jungle Adventures, located on State Road 50 in East Orange County. Just look for the 200-foot-long alligator named Swampy. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you can find great books on Florida history and culture, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here a couple of Hopkins plat maps of Miami from the collection. What is a plat map? Well, a lot of people have probably heard the term plat, P-L-A-T, but it's a good question. What is it? Quite simply, it's a cadastral map or a two-dimensional map that's drawn to scale that shows divisions of a piece of land. So early on in Florida's history, say in the mid-19th century, the federal government set up the public land surveying system, meaning they went through the entire state and set up a grid, essentially, placed over the state. And then from there, they could subdivide that property into what will become towns and streets and uh, homes and places like that. And they created these legal descriptions. So a plat map is essentially just that. It's looking at a particular region broken up into these subdivisions, which can actually be broken down into blocks and then from there further subdivided into lots. So if someone were to look at the legal description of their own home, it would probably be a series of numbers and they would say lot and move up from there to township and range numbers, which are your broad grid system numbers as part of that larger public land system that was created, like I said, way back for Florida in the 19th century for other parts of the country even earlier. So that's basically what we're looking at. It's a two-dimensional map that's drawn to scale that gives you very precise measurements of how large a piece of land is. This Hopkins Platt map of Miami is from 1925, a pivotal time in the city's history. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at now is really a fascinating book of plat maps. And as you said, it covers Miami for the year 1925. And this particular collection was created by the GM Hopkins Company. And Hopkins was a very large company. They created maps for the entire country. 
and they were in business from about 1870 until the 1940s. But this particular one of Miami is great because 1925, at least in Miami's history, was a, a very pivotal year. A lot was happening between the teen years up to about 1924-25 in terms of rapid expansion. And Miami was really the epicenter of what will become the Florida land boom. So there was rampant land speculation. Prices were very, very high. In fact, supply for building of homes just really couldn't keep up with the demand. And this all happened in a very, very short amount of time, up until about 1925. So when we look at the book itself from 1925, you'll notice, if I turn one page over here, you'll see a lot of these small sections actually have pieces of paper glued on top of them. Because what happened, rather than printing a new book, if in the ensuing years there was a building built on top of what was a vacant lot, they would just glue this piece of paper on top of it. So you can see all these little tiny leaflets, some of which, of course, over the course of a century, have sort of delaminated. But you can see where they were glued into these areas. And it shows everything. It shows where schools are, where railroad tracks are, roads, of course, sidewalks. It even describes businesses. I think one of the interesting things that stands out in Miami in 1925 is just the number of dairy farms, <laughs> believe it or not. It was still a pretty rural part of South Florida. So a lot of the produce was still grown right there and then brought into the city. But getting back to the year, 25 was important for a couple of reasons. In early 1926, there was a 250-foot schooner called the Prince Valdemar that was actually being towed into Miami Harbor. And it capsized right in the turning basin and essentially blocked all marine traffic from coming into the port. And the railroads really couldn't keep up with that supply, so the port was vitally important. And it was very, very difficult for people to right the ship and move it out of the way. So for months, they couldn't get building supplies into Miami. So that became very, very difficult and started to slow down this rapid growth. Another problem in 1926 was a hurricane that struck South Florida and really devastated Miami. So between those two major events in Miami's history, this book is a snapshot of a period that ended abruptly within a year after this book was produced. These maps were recently donated to the Library of Florida History by Jack Rabin, right? Yeah, that's right. And Jack Rabin is a longtime Miami resident. He was originally from Augusta, Georgia, but moved to Miami in the 1940s as a young boy and worked for the city actually as a land surveyor. So for a land surveyor, these plat maps are very important, not just for aesthetic reasons or for historical purposes, but again, because of the legal descriptions. You know, the land surveyors were the ones on the ground who actually created and did the measurements that would then create these plat maps. So he actually used these in his career. We have another book here from 1953 that was updated through 1961. And you can just see the, the amount of change, say, after the post-World War II years. And these are changes that Jack Rabin experienced, that he actually saw and you can translate those personal experiences to what's happening on the map. He would point out places where, say, schools used to be that were now destroyed. There was an old dump here in the western part of town that was completely covered over, and now it's a subdivision. The airport, what would become the Miami International Airport, we can see where that was here. In fact, the area where he grew up was called the Windward Neighborhood, just north of downtown. And if you look at, say, the 1925 map here, it's covered up with railroads. It's an industrial area, and it actually borders and this is another important point about these maps, it borders the African-American neighborhoods. So in 1925 and even up through the 1950s, you can see the visual segregation that existed in these towns throughout the South. In fact, you can see here where it says Colored Park, and you can actually see the line on the other side of the tracks. 
where people were essentially segregated. So these were a big part of his life. And they translate, again, these personal experiences and add a little bit of kind of historical character to what we would essentially just use as kind of a map to show the evolution of a parcel of land or a piece of property. With stories that come along with a donation like this, it really kind of breathes some fascinating life into these really interesting historical documents. Great. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the Hopkins plat maps of Miami we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. The building known as the Glass Bank opened in 1962 and quickly became an iconic structure in Cocoa Beach. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. Officially known as the first federal savings and loan, the Glass Bank was an iconic five-story building in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Located near Patrick Air Force Base and NASA's John F. Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, For nearly a decade, it was a hot spot for locals and tourists. The building fell into disrepair in the 1970s and was demolished in 2015. Historian Dr. Lori Walters is a research assistant professor at the Institute for Simulation and Training at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She is also a noted space historian. She talked to me about the rise and fall of the Glass Bank in Cocoa Beach. So the Glass Bank is just a wonderful representation of space-age architecture. The architect uh, was a member of the Sarasota School of Architecture, which was, of course, a favorite group of of mid-century architects here in Florida, um, by the name of uh, Reginald Knight. While it's called the Glass Bank, it's actually the First Federal Savings and Loan Association of Cocoa, the Cocoa Beach branch. And so Cocoa Beach is, is starting to grow in the early 1960s because we've got that second wave of growth going on thanks to the uh, establishment of NASA and then the third wave because of the uh, Apollo program. As Dr. Walters explains, Cocoa Beach grew exponentially as more people moved to the area for job opportunities with the U.S. space program. It's clear that Cocoa Beach is, is going to grow. And so um, the uh, First Federal Savings and Loan, they decided they want to have a um, a better facility in Cocoa Beach because right you know at that moment in time they had a very small branch that was in downtown Cocoa Beach and so the president of the savings and loan was a very forward-thinking individual who wanted something that really stood out that that spoke about what the community was and that said much about them as well Cocoa Beach at this time is just a little over 3,000 people and so this building um, cost uh, roughly $750,000 and then you multiply that by probably now about 7, 7.5 to get about what its value would be today if it were constructed. That's an awful lot of money for a community of that size. It really says that they think that, that the future of Cocoa Beach is going to be boundless. They spared no expense in this building. And it was a beautiful structure. I mean, you know, from an architectural standpoint, I mean, it could have been just as at home in Los Angeles or in Palm Springs as it was here in Cocoa Beach. It really um, was a wonderful representation of mid-century architecture. The interior of the glass bank was modern and elegant. In its glory years, politicians, astronauts, space workers, and celebrities visited the glass bank. Dr. Walters. 
the interior of the building as well is, is really quite fascinating. You know, the reason why it got the nickname the Glass Bank is because really it, it looks like, and you got to remember what it looked like when it was originally constructed. And so when it originally was um, constructed, it had uh, a lot of glass and inside they had uh, like an atrium and they had a mezzanine level and the bank was on the bottom and a couple independent offices were on the bottom as well. The mezzanine level was really um, just for viewing and uh, the public could hold events up there and, and they had like their coffee break room and everything up there the, for the bank. And then they had uh, another floor that was for offices and then the top was a restaurant, Ramon's Rainbow Room. And Ramon's was a very popular restaurant that was known for its prime rib and its Caesar salad dressing. Because of its space-age architecture and swanky atmosphere, the glass bank soon became a symbol of Cocoa Beach. It was a beautiful building. I mean, striking, and, and it looked so space-agey. And, and it's an original configuration. It had a skywalk on the outside that you could watch the missiles. So it really incorporated what the community was. You could stand up there and look at the ocean, or you could stand and, and watch the missiles fly. And the restaurant was, again, it was a high-end restaurant. You know, Walter Cronkite would eat there. And, and they had um, what was very you know typical of the era. They had fashion shows. And so you would, you would see that in some of the better restaurants, obviously in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Miami, um, where people would be having lunch, business lunches and everything, and the young ladies would be dressed in this very expensive attire. And, you know, it was very much in tune with the times, and it was just wonderful. While the building was visually impressive, it also had its flaws. You know, it had so much glass that it, that it leaked like a sieve. Um, the echo would be, you know, you'd, you'd be on the, on the mezzanine level, and you could hear everything that was going on the bottom level and vice versa, and, and it was just like an echo chamber in there. And one side of the building was always hot, and one side of the building was always cold because, you know, they had to crank the air conditioning up so high because the one side of the sun coming in. By the late 1960s, times were changing, and the glass bank began to lose popularity. Two modifications had occurred. One in 1964, they pushed out the, the walls of the restaurant that was on top of it uh, to make more floor space. And then in 1980, um, the facade had changed where they had more of that stucco added to it. It still had a kind of space-age feel to it, and, you know, because of the slopes and everything. Much of the glass was taken away, you know, because of the uh, leakage problems that they had. Some of the areas that presented the most problem, the, the glass was no longer there, and so what they did is they put, like, a stucco finish over it. And then, of course, um, the, uh, the penthouse was, was placed atop it as well, which, of course, proportionally changed the building because if you look at the original configuration of it, you know, having this big block on top of it, you know, I'm sure Reginald Knight never envisioned anything like that ever occurring. But, uh, you know, it, it had changed a lot, too, and so, you know, it had so much damage in it that um, it would have been very difficult to return it to what it once was. The historic hurricane season of 2004 damaged the glass bank beyond repair. It was eventually demolished in 2015. Gone but not forgotten, locals still remember the glass bank. They even continue to use it as an identifying landmark. During the uh, 50th anniversary for Apollo 11, they had a parade in Cocoa Beach. And uh, the flyers, they had said where the parade was going to start and end and such. And by the summer of uh, 2019, you know, the glass bank had been demolished. You know, it was, it was down in, in January of 2015, so it's been gone for a number of years now. And so that speaks volumes as to what that, that building meant to the community, that it could still be used. It's been gone for years, but yet 
it's being used as a, as a point of reference for something as important as a parade for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. The rise and fall of the glass bank paralleled the space race. Even though the glass bank no longer exists, Dr. Lori Walters and her students and colleagues were able to digitally preserve the building through 3D laser printing. Just before its demolition in 2015, Dr. Walters and her team conducted a laser scan of the glass bank's exterior and created a 3D model of the structure as it appeared in 1963. Terrestrial laser scanning is, is specifically what we do. The laser goes around and as it goes out, it hits anything that's in its path. And because we know what the speed of light is, as a result of that, we can determine when it hits something and bounces back how far the distance is. So as this laser is going around, it's, it's going around hundreds and thousands of times as it's going in a 360 degree turn. And so as it's doing this, it's recording all of these points. Every time it hits something, it records a point in space. And so it records an X, Y, and Z point in space. And so it does a 360 degree pass. After it does, does that, it then goes around and it takes a photograph of the exact same location. So that what it does with that second pass is that that photograph is actually capturing the color. And so that gives me a point cloud representation of a 3D space. And it is a highly accurate, depending upon the distance and the setting that you put the, the equipment on, it can be up to one millimeter accuracy. And this is important for historic preservation. It's used in archaeology, it's used in crime scene investigation, it's used in engineering, and a whole host of other um, disciplines. The Glass Bank was a distinctive building that signaled a bright and innovative future for Cocoa Beach. Through the use of 3D laser printing, Dr. Walters and her team have captured and preserved the essence of the Glass Bank. Because of their efforts, future generations can see the Glass Bank as it was during the height of the space race, when it was the hippest spot in Cocoa Beach. Dr. Lori Walters. Why I'm interested in it, it enables me to capture a moment in time. And what one can do with that is, in the event of a fire, in the, as we saw with Notre Dame, um, in the in natural disaster of an earthquake, um, in the case of sometimes in, in war-torn areas, um, simply weather deterioration, a demolition, or a modification, I, can, I have that, that point in time, that capture in time, that I can then go from point A to point B, and I can do up to one millimeter accuracy dimensions. So from that standpoint, it is a wonderful historic preservation tool, digitally preserving. And so, you know, basically, you know, that's what a laser scanner is, is I like to look at it as, as something that is um, capturing a moment in time, digitally, you know, capturing a visual representation of a moment in time. In order to tell the story of the glass bank during its golden era, Dr. Walters and her team also collected images, documents, and oral histories from the Cocoa Beach community. I don't just call it that we do a, a laser scan of a structure and then we walk away from the structure. Most of the structures, I try to do a life history of a building. And I look at it as we do the, the, the digital capture with the laser scanner. And then we try to contextualize the building within the era through um, historic images, memorabilia, ephemera, oral histories. So that now we not only look at a digital representation of the glass bank, We've captured that prior to its demolition. We've now gone out and we've sought out historical images. We've sought out um, menus from Ramon's Rainbow Room. We've conducted oral histories with people about what it was like to work on the development of the building, 
work in the building, live near the building, just pass by the building. But they, they could be very brief oral histories, you know, just somebody that maybe bank there, you know, and those little, you know, uh, micro oral histories are, are just as important as, as the deep, you know, ones that we may have. For more information about the digital preservation projects of Dr. Lori Walters and her team, go to chronopoints.com. That's C-H-R-O-N-O-P-O-I-N-T-S dot com. ChronoPoints is a lab at the University of Central Florida's Institute for Simulation and Training, dedicated to digitally documenting historically significant structures and artifacts. There you can learn more about 3D laser scanning, you can virtually explore the glass bank, and you can look through an image gallery featuring photographs of the building. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.